Hi, this is Brent Weeks, author of the Lightbringer series. Welcome to the Legendarium. Maybe uh, we can get off of Tysis for now because there's going to be plenty of getting on Tysis later uh, coming up in book four. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Best segue to Blood Mirror ever. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, I am Craig, your host. Uh, this is The Broken Eye, Lightbringer episode number three. So, Or, sorry, Lightbringer book number three. This is the second episode for that book. I'm already confused. I think we have an like, indication of how this is going to be. Episode six. Six. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Six of the Lightbringer series. Okay. So, <laughs> we're covering chapters 56 through 97. Uh, that is the end of the book. So, if you have not yet read The Broken Eye in its entirety... Go do so now, because spoilers for the entire book. Now, I do want to introduce who we have here, and I feel like I can actually never quite see him uh, due to his cloak of human skin, uh, but he's here anyway. It's Ryan Bruckman. Uh, I need a new one. Uh, have you been moisturizing? <laughs> rubs the lotion on its skin. And I love having her on the show, much in the same way I'd love a hot poker in the eye. It's Stephanie Bruckman. Thanks. Yeah. I really appreciate that one. <laughs> you know, last week we recorded an episode and Megan was sad that I didn't insult her. And I know you're not Megan, but I didn't want to disappoint this time. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, so we want to get right into this. It's been a little while since we recorded. I don't know if you want to explain yourselves, actors, but uh, <laughs> it's been a little while since we recorded our Lightbringer series. Uh, we're back for this one, uh, but it, it has been a while since we did the first half of this book. And so I'm interested to see how these episodes will mash up uh, because we're recording them, what, two months apart, probably. Yeah. Something but like people will, will likely listen to them, you know, back to back. And so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they match up. But anyway, let's get into The Broken Eye and start right away with a question because I know this is something we didn't get to in that first episode was uh, some of the listener questions uh, that we asked for on Discord. So Armor Hide asks, would your opinion of the ending of The Broken Eye have changed if you didn't already have the next book to jump to? And I thought this would be a perfect one to talk about first because we can kind of talk about what happens at the end of The Broken Eye. Maybe we want to do a little synopsis of some things that happen. But yeah, maybe we can talk about how this series operates uh, functionally or, you know, as, as an arc with all of these books together and how they would have operated if we had read them as they were being released. Um, so anyway, let's start, though, with what happens in this book. Ryan, uh, what happens in the second half of this book to lead up to this ending? Well, if we want to jump straight to the ending, kind of focusing there, uh, we've, for the first half of this book, Kip, Gavin, all of our heroes have kind of been sitting in this little, going in this little circle thing. They've been on a boat, or they've been, and it's not a whole, whole lot has happened, but in the second half, a lot happens, and a lot happens really quick. Um, basically, uh, Kip is, gets back with the Blackguard and then they, they're researching a bunch of stuff, uh, thanks to Andros and ends up getting kicked out of the Chromaria. They're banished and threatened with death. Uh, and so the end of this is kind of there with a, with a wink and a nudge, right? Yeah. With a little bit of a wink and a nudge, like, Hey guys, get out of here. The only way you're going to survive is if you do what I want from Andros, because that's the way he works. Uh, so Kip, his, uh, his friends, they go off. Kip marries Tysus Malargos. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, they go off that way. Uh, Gavin has been captured by the Malargos family. Sweet. Uh, and is publicly uh, shamed, even though they don't know who he is. Uh, they've kind of hidden his identity uh, by smudging his face and blacking his hair and things like that. Uh, they go and they burn out one of his eyes. Uh, they're aiming to do both, but Karis are... Wait, the Malargos know who he is. Yes, right. but the, the people, people the people don't. Okay, they're doing it in this saying. giant arena, yes. a la Attack of the Clones. Um, <laughs> oh, you're not going straight to uh, Rise of Skywalker? <laughs> no, no, there's more light to this one. It's, oh, okay. it's not underground in a light place. <laughs> this is. I, I'm going to Geonosis for this one. That's my visual of of the arena they've got. Perfect. Somewhere between that and uh, Gladiator. <laughs> so anyway, Gavin's out there. So anyway, I think that's the right word. <clears throat> going. So anyway, uh, they burn out his eye. 
Karis, uh, discovering that he is alive, finding out where he's at, takes Iron Fist and a bunch of other black guards, and they go and save him from having both eyes uh, burned out. And, and this is a scene we're going to have to talk about oh, yeah. more, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go on with your synopsis. Anyway, so basically uh, they take Gavin back to, and get him to a chirurgeon to be able to take care of him, try and heal him back up, and he disappears. The chirurgeon steals him away, and Gavin wakes up in the blue cell that he made for his brother originally. Um and let's see. That's so. and the and the blue prison is made whole once yes, more. Yes, it's been it's been fixed up. So yeah, Kip's been uh, banished. Gavin's in the blue prison. Karis is made the white uh, after the white is assassinated. And uh, there's a whole tricky using orange hexes to try and rig the the election of the new white. Basically, right. Karis kills a couple of people and takes over as the white. And is I, that in this book? Yeah, yes. yeah, right at the very end. Oh, the I was thinking end. it was the very beginning of the next book. Okay. No, it's the end of this book. Um, so the end of this book ends with Karis as the White, Kip uh, married to Tysus off, and Gavin uh, in the blue prison. So. Okay, all right. So now full circle, we're back where we were, except that now it's the real Gazin, Gavin, Dazin, Gavin, Faison yes. in the prison. It's not the fake one. Right. Oh, boy. All right. So it's just, just weird circles within the circles. Uh, okay, so like... Should we just go right to the ending and talk about that scene and then get to um, get which, to that question from Armor Hide? <laughs> I want to talk about the gladiator scene. Okay. All right. Or, or uh, sorry, the Geonosis scene. <laughs> so Gavin has been prisoner. We, we can talk about the stuff that's led up to this, but he's now pulled into this arena. Uh, he's terrified because he knows what they're going to do. And so I think it's a great build up as far as the dread of this scene. Oh, yeah. Where you, you know that he's going to be pulled into a public execution. Oh, wait, it's not going to be an execution. It's going to be even worse. They're going to take everything that has ever mattered to him because they're going to take his sight mm -hmm. and they're going to do it in public. And uh, so I, I think there's many pages of really great buildup. Then you go into the, the arena. He's strapped down like a Braveheart. Okay, let's go Braveheart. Here's another <laughs> reference for us, right? Um, and he's strapped down to this thing. And then he is, he has one last chance to save himself. Okay, so he could, there, there's a lot of avenues that he could take, most of which probably won't work the way that he would like them to. He can yell out who he is so that, you know, hopefully somebody will be like, oh, sweet, the prison, let's rescue him. But of course, nobody's going to do that. There's a couple uh, of people who know. Right. The guard, there's one guard who recognizes right. him. Right, right. But yes. Um, and then, there, you know, he has maybe some hope of, Karis coming to rescue him which she is on her way but he doesn't know that and, mm -hmm. and so he's still in the depths of despair uh, but then he begins to draft Black Luxon and this is his one chance he can draft Black Luxon use it to kill everybody around him and just do another what was it it's not do my as wells what's the what's the thing <laughs> what's the event in this one what's it what's it called um shoot shoot we'll look it up yeah. Stephanie you can effort that one for us <laughs> What am I looking up? Where he, what, what was uh, the Sundered, Sundered Rock? Rock. Uh, we both got it at the same time. The Battle of Sundered Rock. Um, anyway, so he could draft the Black Luxon and save himself. And he's staring directly into the sun and and is going to draft Black Luxon. And it's partly because it turns out that's the only color he can see anymore. All he mm -hmm. can see is black and white, right? So now he could draft Black Luxon and he ultimately decides not to. Because we've learned throughout the book what a what a horrible thing that really is. Yeah. And so there's a part of you that's like, Gavin, save yourself. And then another part of you that's like, well, I don't know if it's going to be worth it. And ultimately, he decides to let it go. And then, yeah, <laughs> it is brutal. I was squirming so hard throughout yeah. this whole scene. I thought that it was a masterfully written scene. And I I don't know what else to say about it other than that, you know, other than diving into the actual language thereof. And maybe we could go look up some of the, the stuff there. But Ryan, what do you think? That's I, I had a very similar experience when I first read this uh, section and I'm going through and I, the whole build up to it. I'm sitting here going, he has to get him out of this. He can't burn out like he can't take his eyes. He can't do this. I, I, I just can't imagine someone going that far and being that ridiculous um, as an author. And yeah, <laughs> did you just call him ridiculous? Yes, I did. Right. 
There you go, Brent. And so I, I kept I kept listening, kept reading through, and waiting for where's the you know where's the hint, where's the clue that's going to tell me how he's going to get out of this. And honestly, when he got to Black Lux, and I was 100% on board with, okay, he's going to do this, and it's going to be a huge thing. It's going to like reverberate throughout the story. Yeah, this is going to be the, the big decision. And when he doesn't, I'm like, oh, he made the hero's choice. He made the hero's choice here. Screw that guy. Like, uh, <laughs> and then as soon as you hear on the audiobook, they start they do the sizzle on the audiobook, just like that. I was like, oh, I just I, I felt so sick. I was gross. I'm like, oh, oh you were doing audiobook for that. I was part? doing audiobook okay. for that part, right. and it was it was rough. It as was, you know, I tend to skip between the two, and uh, and for that one, I was reading. And it was one of those, it, it was a mistake to start the scene at 11.30 at night yeah. because I was up until mm. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Just could not stop. Could right. not, would not. Stephanie, what, did you have a similar reaction during the scene or did you, do you not care so much about Gavin? Do you, are you not into the violence? Surprisingly, the violence wasn't that bad for stuff that I've read from Brent. Like, yeah. there's, there's definitely oh, yeah. worse for me. Um, this was a little surprising because it does not that the violence comes out of nowhere, but this book is not full of violence. So he did take a real drastic, we're going to do some torturous things here, which I don't know for me, I kind of, I would have been okay if Gavin ended up dead by here or something (laughs) more drastic, um, than where he does end up with this story. But so it is interesting that you say that we take a step back on the violence, but in a way it's more for me, at least it's more affecting than the kind of gore. He took a step back in the amount of violence. And then he took like five steps forward in the level of violence. It's like emotional violence that he's inflicting upon us as readers. Right. Cause then a couple minutes later we have Karis who whips off a belt and cuts off a guy's head. Like (laughs) that was pretty cool. It was. Yeah. I, I, this whole sequence, I mean, we, we focus a lot on the Gavin and the eye burning part, but the whole sequence in there where Karis shows up, she's also in costume, basically, you know, knows that if she reveals who it is, she's going to cause huge problems, everything here. So she waits, she hides her own identity, goes down as this, uh, you know, airheaded, dumb wife who's just trying to, you know, oh, right, right, right. and then calls out, you know, cries out for, I, I call for uh, the right of challenge or battle, or I can't remember the exact phrasing sure. she uses. You know, which is not a thing. Trial by combat. Tri- yeah, trial by combat. She she calls for this, which is not a thing for this. But all of a sudden, you know, the new Kaba. Uh, is it Kaba. is it not a thing, or it's just not been a thing for so long that nobody can really remember how to deal with it? It's it's not a thing. Okay. Um, but there, it's one of those things that everyone just assumes. Oh, it's just it's been so long. Okay. Like we, I did. Yeah, they do that kind of thing, which is what allows the. The, the ruler, I can't remember if it's the new Kaba or if it's, uh, I think it's Milagros, um, who uh, basically says, okay, fine, you're, you're giving me a chance to save face here a little bit. Fine, you can have your trial by combat. Here's my champion and chucks him out there and then she pulls the trigger on her little belt gun, her, not belt right. gun, but I was like, oh, that's fantastic. And then all of a sudden the Jedi show up and the lightsabers turn on. and <laughs> <laughs> So we've had Indiana Jones now, right? <laughs> Well, he pulls the pistol out and just shoots the guy. I'm just, yeah, I'm working through a lot of different visuals here for this. <laughs> but no, then the black guard are kind of helping him get out, you know, try to help him get out. And they they get out and she cries out who it is. And it causes a stir among the people to cause the commotion to give them the coverage to to escape. And and ultimately they do escape. But at the cost of Gavin's eye and two of his fingers, he's lost two fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's lost an eye. He's unconscious. Um, he is, uh, yeah, really, really in bad shape. And by the end of the book, as you mentioned, the chirurgeon, the doctors in this story, mm-hmm. the doctor is working on him. Turns out it's double agent for Andros and uh, steals Gavin away, puts him in the prison. And that's where we've left him. So things went from from bad to worse to worse to two fingers worse to an eyeball worse. Uh, and then, ooh, things are looking up. No, no, even worse. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now he's in the prison of his own making. And this is why... Without the ability to draft anything. (laughs) Right. So I I think we should talk more in future episodes about the next two books, about especially in the last book, about uh, Brent Weeks's um, his reputation in what he does to his characters. 
because people talk all the time about, oh, you never let anything good happen to your characters. Everything is horrible all the time. And aside from Gavin, I'm always like, well, I don't know if I see that. Everybody has things... You know, things work out for them as they tend to do in stories like this. Things go Kipping pretty they have well. Ups and downs, like yeah, like exactly. you want ups and downs, but things generally turn out okay. It's I think it's Gavin in this book is it was so horrible. The things that happened to him were so horrible and so affecting that that's what stuck in people's minds. And now when they think Brent Weeks, they think Gavin in the Broken Eye. Mm-hmm. and he treats his characters horribly. And maybe right? that's why I feel like I would have been like, just kill him off. Kill him off and create some other, <laughs> take the books in a different direction and just kill Gavin because what else are you going to do to the poor guy? <laughs> so, but that brings us to finally, now what, 10, 15 minutes later, we're to our question from Armor Hide, which is, um, would your opinion of the ending of The Broken Eye have changed if you didn't already have the next book to jump to? So... Let's review some of the history of, and yeah, here I'm dodging the question again, but I swear I'm getting to it. Uh, some of the history of the Lightbringer trilogy mm-hmm. is that when he the started, trilogy. yeah, he started writing it and, you know, it starts gaining fans. He already had some fans from the Night Angel trilogy and now they're coming over for this. He's gaining new fans for Lightbringer and uh, first two books are really successful and he comes out and says, look, I need more books. The, the Lightbringer trilogy has now become the Lightbringer series. And so people weren't maybe sure how long this was going to go. And so at this point now, in at the end of 2019, early 2020, we have the whole series to read. And we understand that the Lightbringer series is five books. And the book three is the middle one. It's our Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, horrible things are happening. Uh, but the arc of justice will bend inexorably toward book five and you know everything will be okay but i think it's an interesting question to bring up would we have felt differently if we had been reading concurrently with the releases uh maybe i would just want to know the only thing i don't know offhand that would affect this is if the announcement of additional books was made before its release because if i got this book and you did not tell me that there were additional ones ahead of time like i'm going to need more (laughs) i'd probably be like what (laughs) <laughs> you can't. This isn't an end. This is right. not an end. But if you announce beforehand, like, "Hey, this is going to take me a little bit longer," then I'd be all. You know, I, I think this is great. This is that that moment of that Empire Strikes Back. This middle point of okay, everything has gone about as far down as we think it can go. Um, now we get to start watching the heroes, you know, gathering together again to go right, right. win the day. Um, and I think honestly, I love the end of this book. I I really do. Um, I think that it would 100% be based on the expectation of whether or not I knew that there was more coming or not. And I wasn't paying attention at the time when this was released, and so I, I don't know, but I've, my understanding is that he was fairly communicative and did tell people before this was published that this will not be the end of the Lightbringer series. But, um, you know, if you're not, you know, capital H, capital O, highly online... Mm-hmm. then maybe you would miss something like that. And, and so you'd get to the end of it and be like, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. And so, I, you know, I think it's an interesting question from Armor Hide. Would our opinion have changed if we didn't have the next book to immediately jump to? Of course, then that brings up, even if we did know that it was going to be a five book series, if we just had to wait for book four, would our opinion have changed? I, I think the question is, did you, you know, do you know that it's going to be five books? Because if even if I had to wait, if I knew this was a five book series, I'm okay with book three being a downer. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm I don't think my opinion would have changed a whole lot as long as I knew there was more coming. Like that's and frankly, I thought the writing was so good that if the book had or if the series had ended here, you know, if uh, Brent Weeks had died tragically in a farming accident or something, um, then it was so good that I'd still be super satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Even if we never got like the ending ending, it, that scene was so good that I would have uh, been all, all right with that. All of your heroes are gone. There you go. There's yeah, exactly. the end of your story. Everything is awful. And uh, yeah, well, I'm glad Brent stuck around long <laughs> enough. So We appreciate you still alive. Stephanie, um, I, I've got a lot of listener comments to get to, but uh, is there anything you want to talk about with the ending of this book? Anything that jumped out to you that, that stuck out as you think back on it that, you know, for me, like I've been saying, this is the scene that, I thought was the best in maybe the series so far. 
Is there anything like that for you that really jumps out? Not in this book. Yeah. Um, that I can. Do you feel like this book to. was lackluster for you compared to some of the others in the series? I think this is the book that took me the longest to get through. That I had to. I kept going back and I, I'd, I'd start listening to chapters over again. Yeah. Because I had taken weeks off between listening to it. Because that was probably my biggest break. I plowed through the first two books. I started listening to book three. Got, I don't know if it's frustrated, got bored, got busy. Yeah. And this book didn't keep me engaged as much. Um, I also had a couple of other podcast books I had to finish. So this book (laughs) kind of got pushed to the back burner and I didn't care as much. Sure. And then I finally finished this one and then again plowed through four and five. So... I'm, this is probably the book I struggle the hardest with remembering things from because it did take me so much longer to read that I just, I don't feel as engaged this book as yeah. I wish I had. Yeah, that makes sense. I And I think it's a middle <clears throat> book thing. And especially, I think, with a lot of authors, and I, I would say Brent Weeks is probably one of them, um, the ending sticks in your mind. And, you know, if, if you can get to the end, it's... Uh, oh my gosh, fireworks and explosions and heads getting chopped off and eyes getting poked out and all this stuff is happening. Uh, but then the first part of the book is so much set up in these epic fantasies that I kind of forgive that. Like it, for me, that's a thing. Right now I'm reading, uh, what's it, Broken Earth? What's the first one called? Fifth, no fifth season, uh, N.K. Jemison. And the first part of the book, I'm like, Ugh, you know, I'm not exactly getting hooked the way that I'd like to, but it's because mm. it's epic fantasy. You got to give it time to... Well, there is, get into your mind. There's so much that happens in the end of this book yeah. that sets up the next two books and puts the characters where they really need to be because, yeah, you have the mighty that's been banished. Well, they're off in their own adventure. We don't even at, know that they're the mighty yet. At the end of this, doesn't Andros? We do the, yeah, yeah, Andros oh, has, the na- very, very has named right. them the mighty before they leave. Uh, as he sends them off, basically. <laughs> that's right. He's planned it all out. Okay, so do we change gears then? This gives us a nice little segue to talk about Andros Gile mm-hmm. um, and... The, you know, adventures in, what's what's the island called that they're on? <laughs> Big Jasper. Big Jasper. <laughs> adventures on Big Jasper. Okay, so um, uh, Yasna as a boy. <laughs> greatest, <laughs> greatest um, handle ever because it's me. I, okay, it's not really me, but it's Yasna. It's a burner account. That is, uh, that's my burner account on Discord. Yasna as a boy asks... Um, who is your favorite character and why is it Andros Kyle? Yeah, we've had this one before, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're starting to get more and more and more Andros Kyle stuff, especially in this book. He's really picking up steam as a character. And so, uh, Ryan, remind me how he kind of manipulates the whole marriage with uh, Kip and Tysis, well, I mean, and et cetera, et cetera. Trying to describe Andros's manipulations is really, really difficult to do. It's, because it's he, why these books are so long. Yeah. yeah. Um, but specifically with Kip and Tysis, uh, he basically sa- needs Kip out of the way in order to achieve what he's looking to do. And so he says, okay, Kip, what I've done is I've, I've arranged a marriage for you. You're go- I tried to marry off Gavin to Tysis Malargos. It didn't work out. So I'm going to marry you off, make you, make, uh, give you a purpose as a bastard um, to serve my family, serve this. You're going to go marry Tysis. You're going to be a spy on the Malargos family. You're going to report back to me when I say, you know, and that is how you're going to be allowed to leave. As long as you are on the boat with her, um, and you get married uh, within the next X hours or mm-hmm. you know, three yeah, days yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, the time he gives them, then then I will I will bring you back later when I'm ready to have you back. Things like that, and we'll we'll make this work. Uh, that's what he sets up there. He's also this whole time been manipulating Kip and the Mighty and developing them into their own little crew so they can uh, they can be together and also trying to uh, work out some Nine Kings cards questions issues and trying to find that original deck right uh the there's the deck that kip had that he got from uh what's her bucket um oh i can't Janice. even remember Janice boric yes thank you wow uh nice he, one. <laughs> he's got that one and then he's got his own set of originals whatever um so that's what andros has been doing is basically trying to learn about nine kings cards get kip out of the way so that he can basically set himself up to be the Lightbringer, quite frankly, like that's what he's looking to do. Right. And uh, this book is where we get that flashback with him. No. Is it, no? <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> we don't know Andros's 
we don't know. end game. Right. In this I book. mean, he's definitely setting himself up as, uh, like you say, the light bringer, maybe, or just I just want to be in charge. Well, he's already the Primarchus. I don't know. He's actually setting himself up to be as a reader in this understanding as the light bringer, but he. I mean, yes. And it kind wise. of. I was kind of reading it as he knows that Kip is the light bringer. He just doesn't care. He has such a high opinion of himself and his abilities that the light bringer is not as important as he is. Yeah. In, or he's going to control the light bringer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. You're, you're just a pawn in my game. I'm right. that powerful. Congratulations. You're the light bringer. Now move to E4. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's Andros and we how do we feel about andros at this point because i am on the record as saying that i've never uh felt as much hatred toward andros as a lot of our listeners seem to mm -hmm. uh, i've always thought that he was a fascinating character and that there must be something more going on and yeah he's a jackwad a lot of the times but but why why is he such a jackwad um how many times can i say jackwad in this episode <laughs> without that little e next to our thing on itunes um Anyway, how how are you guys feeling about Andros at this point? Are you with me or do you just hate him and want him off screen? I hate Andros. He's right up there with Umbridge as like a villain for me. <laughs> like I just I despise anytime he starts talking, like just grow a heart or something. Like I cuz I guess for me other than just power and that's not a motivator for me, so I have a hard time understanding that as a motivator for others because that's all it feels like. He doesn't care about his family. He does. They're all pawns to him. Like I need Gavin as the prison because that gives me power. I need Kip to do this because it gives me power. Everyone in his life is for his benefit, and that frustrates me. And well, I hate it. And I hate anytime he's talking and he's so vague, and you don't know what in the world he's saying. And I think it might be I worthwhile to dig into that a little bit. Why? So, Stephanie, you say, I, I think this is fascinating. You say, this is not a mindset that I can relate to, right? You're not in search of power in the way that somebody like Andros is, right? No. <laughs> but, but this isn't something that's foreign to everybody. I think there are a lot of people who think this way, and, and why is it that they do? And I think he's an interesting character study in that way, that he is... Um, he is that smart and he is that capable. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, why, why wouldn't we want him in charge? Why shouldn't? No, I'm serious. I'm not saying that, I'm no, not yeah, saying yeah. that the answer is that we should all put a bunch of Androsses in charge, but, um, he, I'm he is extremely clever. He is extremely capable. And if he is operating, you know, on your side of things, why wouldn't you want him in charge? It's a, I think it's a legit question. But how do you know he's operating on your side of ah, things? Ah, now we're talking. That's the thing. I, I, you never, I'm always questioning his loyalties. I mean, he has, he's working with the order. I mean, he's constantly hiring people from the order to, to assassinate other people. He has spies everywhere. Like, I don't know whose side he's fighting on. Is he actually trying to help the Cremaria? Does he care even if the Cremaria exists? Because I don't think he cares if the colors are around as long as he has the power. Like, cue, so, the, cue that song, whatever that song is called. So I don't think he. it matters to him like the religious background that so many people view as what the prism does and what the Cremaria stands for. I question whether Andros feels that way, so... Well, Why yeah. in the world? I I want, even if he shows some shred of compassion, because that's what I think he's missing mm -hmm. as a great leader. Yes, he's he's ridiculously smart, but he lacks the compassion that I would want in a leader. So. No, I just laughed because Stephanie and I had a conversation not too long ago about that Craig would want the Empire to win, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it is the the um, the first Star Wars movie is one of the great tragedies ever told about a, a bunch of upstart terrorists who <laughs> disrupt the uh, the order that the Empire has provided. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's just when you were like, why wouldn't we want Andros in charge? It's like, it's true. It's true. <laughs> no, but I, am, I actually, I, I do understand when you have somebody who's that capable, that intelligent, as you don't, the problem is that you don't control somebody like that. Like you, your best bet is to hitch your bandwagon to that and say, okay, I hope I'm picking the right, you know, choosing the right horse on that because 
you're not going to be able to control a character like that or him, which is part of the reason why he is so powerful. Is Everyone knows, people know that whatever his will is gets done. Um, I do not, I respect Andros Guile. And I I think that as a character, that is about as far as I my my uh, my care for him would go is that I respect and I I see how good he is at what he does and I don't think even though like we talk about he he uses everybody it's his type of love his understanding and and, and ways that he shows that he cares is very vastly different than the, the normal person uh, because I think if he really didn't care he would let everything burn and just build it himself again but he's still trying to save something which means he does care about something. I just don't think that it's the way that we normally process Well, I think it. he knows if he lets it burn, he has no one to control. How do you let it burn and want to start from the ground up? But I, I've been thinking as you've been talking, Ryan, is the similarities between him and the color prince. Because mm, the color yeah. prince is kind of that same way. In He has a plan. He has an idea of what the world should be. And he's stepping on everyone and anyone that he needs to to make the world he wants to create. And Andros is kind of that same way for me. You know who, what, what I'm reminded of because I'm re-watching the show right now is uh, Sherlock Holmes. So I'm re-watching the Benedict mm-hmm. Cumberbatch version, uh, which is one of the great television programs ever produced. Yeah. Uh, season four accepted. Anyway, but in that one, Sherlock Holmes is a high-functioning sociopath, right? And he cannot process human emotion. And the only thing that matters to him is cleverness and in in sherlock holmes in the story of sherlock holmes it's kind of about teaching him how to navigate the world of emotion and how to be a decent friend and a decent human being and think about others and all of that but it's also in a way about those around him taking his abilities and channeling them toward a certain end Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he is being used as much as he's using others around him. And they see his abilities and they channel those, focus those in a certain direction. And that's kind of how I'm picturing Andros Guile in a way. But instead of cleverness, I mean, he is that. But he would be like, uh, what's the brother's name in Sherlock Holmes? Mycroft. Yeah, he's like Mycroft, right? And it's <laughs> like, okay, fine. Seek power. Go for it. As long as you're doing what, uh, you know, what we think is right as a group as a society as a whatever Mm -hmm. so uh it was just reminding me of that should we let's talk then about the other people on the jaspers uh and talk about tia a little bit and karis i want to talk about them uh so where's karis right now ryan karis has been made the spy mistress uh to uh orea pular pular yeah um the current white um and she's, and by the end of the book, she is the white. I mean, that's that's her arc in this is becoming the white, learning the intricacies of the 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 craft of that, that she's been honestly that she's been shaped to be this from the beginning. Because I think she, uh, the white even makes some comment that one, uh, you know, I hope one day you'll forgive me, uh, you'll be able to forgive me for what I've what I've done to you, basically, right. um, putting her in this position. The the really interesting thing is when you look at all the characters. Um, uh, in reference to, as we've been talking about, their relationship with Andros. Up to this point, it seemed like the the one who is um, across his uh, his foil, I guess, would be would be Gavin. Like, uh, you mean, you're talking about Andros? Andros versus yeah. Gavin. Yeah, it'd be like okay. okay the, you know, if you have to pick two, you know, when you pick the who's going to go head to head against the villains at the end of the series type thing, you'd probably pick Gavin going up against Andros. You know, father versus son the whole right. thing there, right here. But by the end of this, we now have Karis in the position of the white. And with uh, the with Andros being the Promarchos, they're the two most powerful people outside of the prism in the Jaspers. And she becomes the white against Andros's will because he's rigged the system uh, using orange hexes so that people that he had chosen could be placed in the position of the white and then he would have control of the entire group, basically. She detects the hexes and kills when it's realized right. the other yeah, two we, yeah and and takes out the assassins yeah she kills she kills the other two candidates right um, for the position who know about the hex see they've been told like this is what it is um and this is how you're going to know which one to pick is go for the one that makes you feel the worst type thing it's yeah all been managed that way and so when she comes in and takes over as the white as this 
ninja white, if you will. Um, awesome. Uh, iron white. Iron white. That's. Uh, no, I'm going I knew there was ninja actual, white. Let's go. They call her the iron white. Yeah. Um, it put it puts her now in the position of being either his greatest enemy or his best ally, and they have not been friendly. He's, he's like, you shouldn't have married into my family. Uh, I sent people to beat the crap out of you a book ago. Two books oh, that's ago, right. Like yeah, that. that's like, right. The, the yeah, it's it really sets up a great dichotomy between the two of them um, from here out here on out. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of really great Karis stuff to talk about, especially I think in book four, um, and then into book five as well. She is going to have a lot of stuff happening to her and around her and by her. Yeah, the events of becoming the wider are probably the biggest event-oriented thing that happens to Karis in this, but the biggest emotional arc for her is dealing with, and I really hope I'm in the right book, dealing with uh, finding out Mauricia. That is in this book. Yeah. I was actually just looking because I know I've gotten a lot of questions. So finish that thought. Finding out Mauricia is... Sorry. <laughs> that Mauricia was the spy mistress uh, before. before. Yeah, I just wanted to make and sure for Mauricia somebody listening. Is. That, what, like, what, what was he going to say? Was he? I can't remember. That? Well, Sorry. yeah, finding out that the room slave of her husband is also an incredibly powerful person right. who has all this and now having to work with her because... There's already the emotional frustrations of having to deal with her um, in her in her duties as a slave to her husband, um, and and now there were duties to other um, people as well that made her as she's a spy mistress. She's very powerful. She's connected, and yeah. she hid in plain sight for a long, long time. Much like another character we find out about at the end of this book. Yes. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so we're going to talk a lot more about Karis moving forward in future episodes. So now let's go to Tia. And this is another thing. Yasna as a boy is, by the way, the hero of this episode. <laughs> submitted so many uh, things for us to talk about after we uh, published the last one. Um, and then came through again today when I asked for comments. But anyway, wants us to talk about Tia's dark journey. I love the, the capital D, capital J, Tia's dark journey. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Um, but Tia is starting out on something really perilous. By the end of this book, like, like we've, we've talked about before, she's being recruited by the Broken Eye. She's in touch with Murder Sharp, the most hilariously named character of all time. Mm -hmm. And um, and then by the end of this book, she decides that not only am I going to be a double agent, I'm really going to see this through. She has an out. She could, at the end of the book, go with Kip and his team and run away and you know fight in the war in some other way. But she decides... You know, I have a duty. I have this thing that I need to accomplish. People are counting on me. And so she decides to stick around. But she got her kiss in. She and Kip got a kiss in. First. Oh, just, you know, I feel that's important. Are we going, is this another call out to Star Wars? No, this, no, 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 no. If you're listening to this three years later, what 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 just came out? What's it called? Rise, Rise of, Skywalker. of Skywalker. Yeah, so everybody's arguing about the kiss. No, it was... But it is something in my reading experience going through the the relationship between Tia and Kip has been built up in this whole time as a as a reader you're going okay you know when Kip first wins Tia's slavery uh, her slave papers from her she's like oh well I guess if you want to have sex we can do that and she's like everything he's like no 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 and he's a really good guy he's really kind to her shows her you know shows her that she's human and helps her feel that way again yeah and everything so the whole time we're building up this relationship between the two of them that they're you know, they're best friends, they're companions, they're fighters, they're really good for each other. And we get to this escape scene between the two of them and they kiss. And then Kip goes off and marries Tysus and, and Tia stays behind right. because she has to complete this mission. And uh, as a reader, I was like, well, that relationship just hit the... <laughs> well, it, and this might, fan. <laughs> might be another instance of uh, what people are talking about. You don't let good things happen to your characters. Uh, this is one of those uh, subversions that I was kind of okay with and and maybe one of the things that keeps Tia on the Jaspers trying to infiltrate the broken eyes that, you know, mm -hmm. if Kip had been like, never mind, Tysus, I just kissed Tia, so uh, I'm going to hang out with her. She'd be like, all right, I'm going to stick with you, Kip, and they'd be off into the sunset. Uh, but in pulling the rug out from under us, uh, Brent has given Tia some really interesting motivations and has opened up some new story avenues for Kip because we've been kind of hung up on Kip and Tia for a few books now. Will they, won't they, and all of that. And so so I thought it was a pretty smart move. And I think it's really interesting for her. She's been making a lot of really, really difficult choices up mm -hmm. to now. 
as far as what she's going to do with her abilities, whether she's going to infiltrate the Broken Eye. Um, and when she sees Kip make the decision to actually stick with Tysis, then it's kind of... A, I have this visualization of her eyes just kind of going hard and saying, you know what? Okay, I'm just going to do my thing then. If he's not going to be with me, then I'm going to be a hero in my own way, whatever. Yes, it's. I think the it's written up that he basically turns to her and gives her, without saying the phrase, the, you know, if you choose me, I'll go with you type thing. Yeah. He kind of says the whole, you know, give me a reason to stay oh, type yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. And she doesn't, and so he goes, and it's like, if they had communicated even just a half half phrase more, they probably would have stayed together. And But both of them, it's like, oh, I've been rejected by the other now. Would you prefer, story-wise, that they had done that, Stephanie? Would you prefer that they be together? That Tia and... and at that At this moment, yes. Yeah. Because at this moment, in this book, I hate Tysis. And that made me so mad at the end of this book that he marries Tysis and leaves Tia. Do you still hate Tysis at the end, though? Because is she and at Kip, the end of this book, yes, I still hate Tysis. She and Kip have that moment where it's a bit of a come together, where it, she's like crying in the shower or something like that, and um, and they they have a chat about duty and obligation, and it's you know, not enough to change my opinion about Tysis in this book. Yeah, at this moment, all I can remember is the fact that she is a complete when she's in she's the a green, floozy say it she's a floozy that's not the word i was actually thinking because <laughs> um, um the real the first time we really see tysis she's um becoming the green and that's when gavin basically manipulates the whole um color thing and she votes herself out basically right, after right. walking into the meeting she turns around and has to walk back out because she's no longer the green and then we next time we really see her she's with andros and Kip walks in on the two of them. And all I'm seeing of Tysis is that she's a manipulator. She she doesn't care about anyone. She's She doesn't even care the fact that Kip walks in on her and Andros. I mean, she's all attitude about it. Kind of like, okay, well, are you going to watch or are you going to leave kind of thing? And that's that's the opinion I have of her Yeah, that's... at the end of this book. And so the fact that one of our heroes is ending up with someone like her makes me mad. Yeah. Okay. So if if you didn't if Brent had died and he didn't finish the series, I you, would have been you would not have this, been as satisfied as I was. This moment, like this ending <laughs> for them, yes, this would have made me mad. Thoughts, Ryan? I I had issues. I did not like the connection him marrying Tysis at the time either. Uh but I I do also go back to the same conversation that you uh were referencing uh where he's in the bath and she comes in and you're like oh here we go again she's gonna be manipulative and everything but uh when she has a very honest conversation with him like look i i need to marry you i need to do these this for my family as much as for anything else like this is this is me being forthright and honest about it not being quite as manipulative and you and you get that sense of like okay for for right now i believe her and because of that, uh, him choosing her and going, like, this is a duty marriage, whatever. We're going to, uh, a duty-bound marriage, not a duty marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The five-year-old in me popped up and went, ha, duty. Um, <laughs> um, but this marriage is, is we're going to have to deal with the fact that they don't love each other down the road. And I'm like, right. I'm interested to see how that plays yeah. out. And I very much appreciate the way that it is handled as it goes along there. But that's that's where I came in with this whole Tysis and everything. I don't know how we ended up with five minutes on Tysis when we're now, we were talking to you, but. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, no, I, I think as long as we're here, I might as well say my piece as well. I felt similarly to Stephanie about, uh, about Tysis going into this book and throughout this book. And then after that conversation with Kip, I felt a lot of sympathy and pity for her because we're we're dealing with characters like Gavin, like Andros, uh, like Karis to a certain extent, Aurea Pular, the White, definitely. These are characters to whom manipulation and politics seem to come naturally. Uh, you know, for somebody like Andros, it's as natural as breathing. And, you know, for somebody like Aurea Pular, it is... Am I saying her, her name right? Yeah. That's the White, right? 
uh, it is, if not as natural as breathing, at least she's really, really talented at it. She's worked a long time at it, and she understands how the game is played. And you have this political situation in the Jaspers that these major players are are playing extremely effectively, and in walks Tysis Malargos, and, and uh, she has to play the game as well. If she wants to have any sort of influence, if she wants to, uh, you know, build up her family or whatnot, she has to do this thing uh, to play this game. And she, what she has is she's an attractive young woman. And that's about the only card she has to play as we come to realize she does not have the sort of skills, the sort of innate abilities, the cleverness that we see out of these other characters. And so she's been playing the only card she feels like she has, you know, whether or not that's true. But she feels like that's what I've got. I'm going with it. And, um, and she is flailing. She's sinking. It's not working out for her. And that scene really helped me, uh, come around to her side of things a little bit and say, oh man, must be rough. <laughs> yeah. I felt kind of bad for her. It's hard to be a beautiful person and that's all you have to give. <laughs> I tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about it. Okay. So like you said, Ryan, maybe, uh, we can get off of Tysis for now. Cause there's going to be plenty of getting on Tysis later. Uh, coming up in book four. <laughs> so, um, let's get to... Best segue um, to Blood Mirror ever. <laughs> let's get to... Kiptan's question was... Uh, he, he wanted us to talk about Tia's arc uh, and wanted us to compare her to Liv and Kip and their arcs and talk about their ideas of morality, loyalty, and freedom, which, you know, I, I feel like we've kind of dipped into a discussion of morality already with Andros, but maybe we could talk about the others as well. Where do you want to go with that? I think it works to discuss it with Tia at this point as a checkpoint uh, because of her decision to be a double agent and to do what's necessary. You know that there is no such thing as a double agent story where they get to be a good person. Like, you are always required to do terrible things to prove right. your value and everything. Like, so for her, uh, dealing with her morality going forward at this point, uh, everything she's done was to get into the black guard. It was to, you know, kind of yeah, deal with the fact that she's been that she's been a slave for so many years. You're at the, now that she has her freedom from these other things, she's now having to choose to try and uh, follow what she's been asked to do in terms of uh, infiltrating the order by Karis, um, and the relationship that she's built with him, with with her, uh, and all of the choices she's going to have to make to to be able to go that deep in on this dark journey. She, she's going to have to do things. TM. Dark Journey TM. Yes. I mean, we, we, we alluded to it a little bit, I believe. Um, but the, the steps that she will have to take are going to be very, very hard on her specifically and her situation. Mm -hmm. And we'll get yeah. more into that in Blood Mirror. Yeah. Um, but that's, I think that's a really exciting setup. I don't, that's why I say this is a checkpoint and not a... So, yeah, you feel like maybe this is a question that we can dig a little bit more into in once Blood she's, Mirror? She's made the choice now. Yeah. We'll talk more about the path that she goes once she's a little further down that okay. path. So, it, it seems like there's a lot of things that we're talking about in this episode where we're kind of putting it off to book four. And we'll talk about it more later. And I assume that there will be even more stuff in book four where, where we say, oh, we'll talk about it in book five. And the ending, the last two episodes of this podcast series will probably be as much an avalanche as the book itself was. Um, but there is one thing. So, okay, we're going to shelve that stuff for now. But uh, Kiptan also brought up her um, comparison with Liv mm -hmm. a little bit. There is some Liv stuff that we could talk about. And I want to use that for the last few minutes to kind of segue into talking about the bad guys. We talked about this in the last episode that, you know, the bad guys are really taking a backseat Mm -hmm. uh, but we do get some interesting stuff with Liv where she um, she knows that she's being manipulated by the color prince and wants to keep that from happening. She sees what he's doing to the other... What, what does he call his lieutenants? Whatever. His other lieutenants. <laughs> and the people who have the black seed crystal on them. Exactly. So she realizes it's a black seed crystal uh, or it's just black Luxon. It's, I don't... Oh, yeah, sorry. Black, it's a Black have, Luxon, and they all get seed crystals to become the gods. Right. So the Black Luxon necklaces that he is giving them are Head designed choppers. to chop their heads off if they ever betray him, and uh, and she doesn't want any part of that, and so she avoids it. She murders the bodyguard that came with her to make sure she put it on, and she takes the seed crystal for herself. So she is now 
um, her own agent kind of working with the color prince, but not necessarily for him in the way that the others are. She's a nice, this is a setup to make her a nice wild card villain. It's the, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a great, uh, a perfect comparison, but if you've ever read Wheel of Time, that you have another villain out there in Pot on Fane who's kind of this wild card who can, who just pops in and out every once in a while. Does, and that's kind of how I feel like she's started to become Yeah, that. Uh, she's not really a villain. She's not a hero anymore like because she started out there her morality her moral compass has been spun so many ways near a magnet that it it doesn't point anywhere Uh, i don't know if that's necessarily true for me i think for Liv, her guiding force is her color the fact that she is a super violet and how logically she thinks through things and the more that she uses and drafts her color and especially as she gets to the end where she actually gets her seed crystal and works between works starts working towards her goddess status with the seed crystal. Oh, I feel like there's a think piece in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, go on. But I think that that's her compass is she's seeing things as this is logic. This is I would yeah. like to end this war on my own side and where she's thinking she's completely thinking 12 steps ahead of everything. Who do I side myself with to get to from point A to point B as quickly as possible? And, and I think that's that's her moral compass. Is it's how do that. we how do but how do we drill that down and, and kind of um, how do we uh, make that coalesce into a single word or phrase? What is it? What is Liv's North Star? Is it? Uh, I think it might be freedom. Like I want to be my own person. I've lived under the the oppressive rule of the Chromeria for too long, and this, well, this other guy that. wants to put me under his own oppressive rule, and all I want is my freedom. And she's using her kind of logical capabilities to keep herself pointed in that direction, right? I think that's a good place, because she, she talks about that, that she struggled with her father, and, and then she got sent to the Chromeria, and now she's with the color prints, and she is. She's constantly putting herself under the thumb of someone else, right? And hates it and doesn't want it. But though she's, she thinks she's working towards her freedom, but it turns around that she, it's not as freeing as she expects and, it to and be. And I wonder I would, if there's, yeah, I would twist that just a little bit to. For me, I think it not necessarily freedom. I think that theme is pretty heavily in uh, with Tia. Oh, okay. There, but identity, uh, being able to dictate her own identity. Um, I think it independence. is independence. Yeah, that along those lines is to me would be fit better uh, that than right. saying freedom exactly. But yes, that 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 feeling, that concept that's been explained. Yeah, I'm behind that. I wonder if there's something to if there's something being illustrated either accidentally or on purpose here, where you we all value our independence. We all value uh, the ability that we have to define ourselves, as you put it, Ryan, uh, to forge our own identity. But can that be taken too far? I mean, it, it's a perfectly uh, it's a perfectly normal and healthy thing to want and to strive toward. But there's also the competing idea that we tie ourselves to others, family, friends, communities, etc. We we tie ourselves to these other uh, institutions and let them or ask them to help us define ourselves. And that is no bad thing either. And so it's so in Live we have the pure distillation of somebody who is pursuing the one end of that extreme. I don't want anybody to tell me anything about who I am. I will decide everything about that. And what that does is it creates this kind of amoral monster who is willing to do absolutely anything to preserve her own freedom as she sees it. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyway. Maybe there's more live stuff to talk about later. I know there will be in book five, but um. yeah, she her role has been. We've talked about this before. Her role has been declining in the books as a narrative, like pushing plot along. Uh, she has been our window into the color prints for the, since the beginning, and now that she's breaking away from him, that becomes even more difficult for us to get a window into what the color prince is doing, right? Because um, we've lost all of our connections to him, other than him himself. Speaking of which, as we said last time, we've left the bad guys behind, and that's uh, in my mind that's been regrettable. But there are other bad guys to talk about. 
And we talked a little bit about some of that already, but <clears throat> I'm going to say this one more time. Yasna is a boy, made a great point <laughs> on Discord. Uh, after our last episode, um, I, I think Yasna as a boy is a boy. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to go with yeah. So he says um, that this book is supposed to show villains, quote unquote villains, differently than the first two books. There are several villains of the Broken Eye, but they aren't the White King or the Prince, Rainbow Prince or whatever he's called. Um, the chief villain of the Broken Eye is institutional and social decay within the society based around the Chromaria, which, whew, I mean, we're coming up on the end of this episode. I don't know if we have the time to dive into that. It's like, okay, professor, <laughs> please write a five-page essay on social decay in the Chromaria. You know, after, after this comment, because it goes on, oh, yeah. <laughs> it goes on, and I have no doubt that uh, good old Yasna as a boy could do just that. And uh, if you do, I will read it on the air. Maybe it's a post credit scene. <laughs> I will. I'll do it. Um, anyway, but uh, there are also other villains. I, man, I'm really resisting the temptation, actually, to really dive into that institutional decay. I think there may be more time to talk about that uh, I think it's as worth, we go. It, it's definitely worthwhile discussing. I, I hesitate to say that that's the villain of this story. Right. That, that's kind of my my hesitation on that because it's it's a it's a strong plot point and a, a motivator for... Uh, it's a gray area for most of our characters to have to deal mm -hmm. with whether Chromeria is right or not. Liv, Kip, everyone has to deal with that. Um, I wouldn't say it's the villain. The villain in this for me is would be uh, the Malargos, uh, the Nukaba. Sure, the Nukaba <laughs> kind of with Zyman. Zyman. Zyman is being set up as the uh, new big bad. I, I still consider Andros as a villain at this point. Okay. All right. So, um, I, but I want to point out that there's something else being set up now, which is the... Uh, uh, what's his name? Abaddon. Yes. And the other, I can't even remember what they're called. The the spirits of the, you know, the fallen angel. Yeah, the 200, whatever they're called. I don't know. They're, they're the the 200, yeah. The djinn. Yeah. Ooh, see how I pulled that out? Nice. Thanks for naming them after, you know, real world mythology. So I could remember that. Anyway, so. I thought we, you were going to say naming it after a drink. <laughs> <laughs> whatever helps you remember, man. <laughs> so we've got the djinn. And so I wonder if, uh, if Brent wasn't sure what else to do with the color prints, uh, but knew that the story was going to go somewhere else. And so he's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to take this opportunity to set up something bigger, badder, and eviler. And, and, and let all this brew in the background and exactly. it'll be back. Yeah. So yeah, we'll bring him back at some point. Turns out he was a tool the entire time. He was just a pawn of the gin. And so there's all this stuff. Kip, kind of gets his uh i talked about the cloak of human skin earlier mm -hmm. he gets that that's the master cloak that he gives to tia he gets that from abaddon during his uh weird dream trance thing when he's dead yeah he's he he dies throw this out do we know what it's made of at this point yeah human skin yeah do we know i know by the end i didn't think we knew that in this book yeah yes. he talks about it in the dream sequence but in the death sequence of, when he realizes he realizes what it's made out of and that's he realizes part of it's reason. made of skin but doesn't remember realize whose skin it is until the end isn't it like faces he can like see the faces in it or something i don't like remember that. offhand but i re i remember reading it and going that's disgusting it is disgusting okay um absolutely here tia you take it <laughs> <laughs> this feels weird but i I also think that whole sequence with Abaddon is we haven't really had a whole lot of interacting with the djinn up to this point uh, that we're aware of. Right. And so it was kind of like out of the blue, like, oh, oh, hello. And that's how I felt reading it was, well, why are we going here? There was something so interesting over there. Can't we go over there? Why are we here? I, I do like the, the way that that was set up. Well, speaking of setup, I think that that does set us up nicely for the blood mirror because it is going to get into some of the things that we've tried to speak around in this episode. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get more into the gin uh, and the issues at the Chromaria and the relationship with Kip and Tysis and what's going to happen with Gavin and all that stuff. So I think the only thing plot wise along with this that I would want to make sure we mentioned at least is that at this point, uh, there's a whole thing with Kip finding the original the, the cards and the cards yes. attaching to his body and that's why he ends up seeing abaddon and i mean because he right. dies as he as he brings all these cards into him um that's i just think that's a that's a valid and an important enough plot point that we need to at least have mention it on the cast <laughs> so, so that's nobody, as far as we have to so go that nobody we yells at us. so yeah we'll be back with the adventures of matt Coth i uh <laughs> kip lightbringer 
later. <laughs> so we'll we'll talk about that. Maybe we can mention that scene. Is there anything about it other than he gains the memories of all these cards? They have magic memories in them, and now they're drained out of the cards, and they're in Kip for him to recall, supposedly at will, hopefully at will. If he can figure out how to do it. Exactly. Yeah, I, the only thing I would say about it is that I think it... Brand, and, wow. Brent, yeah, Freudian slip there. That Brent did a very good job in setting up, setting this moment up uh, from the very beginning because our earliest encounters with Nine Kings cards, we learn about how drafting and touching them yep. sets it up there. So this, there, there's no surprise about this when it, when they all hit him, you go, oh crap, yeah, this is that is not good. Right. He's going to have some problems here, um, but there's no question of like how in the heck did that work because it's already been established quite well. Okay, so let's go ahead and break then. Stephanie, any final thoughts on this book before we go into Blood Mirror? No, I'm good. I think I'm good all, all as well. You good, Ryan? Yep. All right, so we'll see everybody for Blood Mirror. I suspect that we will do our Blood Mirror episodes a little bit differently and maybe just talk about the whole book um, instead of splitting it into two because this has been difficult <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And so if the if our Broken Eye episodes are a little bit rough, I think it's because we were trying to artificially do something that we weren't doing as readers. And so it didn't quite work yeah. maybe uh, in the discussion. So uh, anyway, but we will see everybody for that. I'm looking forward to the Blood Mirror and Broken, or sorry, and the Burning White discussions because these are the two, easily the two most divisive books in the series. Uh, so I think there will be a lot to talk about. We will see you all then. If you enjoy what we do, make sure you support the podcast at patreon.com slash legendarium and go to thelegendarium.reddit.com to join the conversation there and to look for a Discord link. You've heard me talk about it a lot this episode and on previous ones. If you'd like to join that live conversation, you can do that there. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey guys, it was Grinwoody all along. He's the old man of the desert. Yep. Kind of forgot to talk about that. Good enough for me.